and welcome to Innovation Matters, the sustainable innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I am Anthony Schiavo, Senior Director at Lux. I'm joined as ever by my two co-hosts, Mike and Kartik, who is just returned from Go Circular, uh, Brussels, which we talked about uh, we talked about last time. Kartik, how, how was Brussels? Yeah, Brussels was uh, pretty good, actually. Didn't get to spend a lot of time going around the city because of the shooting that took place, uh, unfortunate <laughs> incidents. But um, yeah, the conference was actually really good. Met a lot of nice people. Had a three-course meal for the first time in my life, so that's uh, an achievement, I guess. Uh, but yeah, good stuff otherwise. Karthik, live, live in the high life in Brussels. <laughs> you love to see it. The, the danger, the dangerous life too. Apparently, living on the edge. Hey man, it's danger the mean, and glamour. The mean they go together. Of, yeah. <laughs> of Brussels. Yeah. How, how are you doing, Mike? Doing well. We're looking forward to our Lux Forum New York next week. Yep. This week, I guess by the time uh, by the time this episode goes goes live. Yeah, but by the time by the time you're hearing this, it'll be tomorrow. There's still time to register if you're listening to this on Monday. If you're listening in to the New York Tuesday, area <laughs> or I mean, or you can get a flight willing to get it overnight. Yeah. Yeah. But if you listen to this on Tuesday, you missed your shot. <laughs> you know what? And that's OK. We didn't watch you there anyway. Um, <laughs> so I think that's fine. Uh, but speaking of, of events and conferences, Karthik, you wanted to, to flag up a couple of things because there were some pretty major announcements at this conference uh, related to the development of the carbon economy in Europe. And I think let's start there and then we can talk about some other other European news. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Portos project, uh, it's uh, one of the so-called first large-scale CCU project, CCS project, uh, beg your pardon, um, in the Netherlands uh, and I think in the world as well. Uh, so they were having a lot of issues with getting the go-ahead to start the project because in the Netherlands, you have specific rules for nitrogen emissions during construction and its impact on the soil. Uh, so they had filed a case at the Supreme Court here in the Netherlands and they actually got a positive ruling. And now they took their final investment decision yesterday and they announced this during the CCS panel um, at the conference. So they are actually working alongside Air Liquide, Air Products, ExxonMobil, and Shell, uh, where these companies will be supplying CO2 to Portos. Um, they will transport it to the North Sea and store uh, the CO2 uh, in liquid form in the empty gas fields beneath the North Sea. Uh, uh, so it's 20 kilometers off the coast at a depth of about three to four kilometers uh, under the sea. And uh, they plan to store 2.5 million tons per year for 15 years, uh, which totals to around 37 million. Um, and they are also going to start construction for this with this final investment decision starting 2024 with uh, the project going to begin operations early 2026. So that's the targeted uh, timeline for the project. Uh, pretty interesting because they were uh, actually joking around in the panel about how there are CCUS projects in Norway that are underway, but this is actually the first large-scale project. So uh, they took a slight dig at Norway, but uh, yeah, that was the the big news, I would say, from the conference. Wow, the perfidious Dutch once again <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. taking shots at their northern neighbors there. No, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. There's a couple of things that stand out to me. Um, 
the big one, I guess, that's interesting, and I'm curious if they talked about this, is what are the potential, you know, relocation effects, right? If you look 20 years out or 30 years out, is this going to really impact where people build chemicals infrastructure and the kind of chemicals infrastructure they build in, you know, or not just chemicals infrastructure, but really any kind of infrastructure in Europe? Like, are, are we going to see it move, you know, more to the Netherlands, more to Northern Europe, away from maybe Germany, that sort of traditional center of precision machine parts manufacturing and, you know, precision, you know, chemicals production in general. Did they talk about that? Did, did, did they say like, hey, yeah, people are really excited to like build new production here? Or was that not part of the conversation? Uh, my understanding was that they were focused completely on the port of Rotterdam because that's where they're going to ship mm. the CO2 and, and they're not going to actually pipe okay. it. They're going to send it by ship. So really, yeah. So they're going to transport the CO2 in a ship and then they're going to store it. At, at the site so Dang. so where's the co2 gonna come from uh they're gonna get the co2 from all the nearby production lines close to the port so oh, interesting so i think what's gonna happen or my understanding before i had it over to you mike uh, for your thoughts is that they're going to uh um, or, or co2 storage projects in general are going to first focus on ports places where you have accessibility to shipping uh closer to the chemicals industries before they, you know, move for other geographies, I guess. I'm not the CO2 expert, but Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the Port of Rotterdam is a pretty big center already for, um, I mean, there's four, five refineries in the in, in the port area there from BP and others. So uh, there's, I, I'm assuming that's all producing like way more CO2 emissions than, uh, more than enough CO2 emissions to take up the capacity of this, uh, of this project for the, uh, the near future, certainly. Um, it is an interesting question, I think, in the longer term. Definitely the capacity at these ports has, um, you know, they could be, could be advantaged in the longer term because it is going to be easier to do to do CCS at these locations than probably it is at a lot of the, you know, German chemical sites along the, along the Rhine and things like that. Though, you know, even some of those companies like BASF's has a big Verbund site in in Antwerp, uh, where they could they could presumably uh, ship CO two out from the, the the port of Antwerp uh, there as there as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to to see how much you know can can you really effectively scale this up enough at reasonable enough cost to to you know meaningfully shift the picture for chemicals production in 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 Europe to, you know, take it, get enough advantage of, you know, if you start to get see things like CBAM applying to chemicals imports, like this could be a way that you can, you can effectively decarbonize in Europe in a way that's uh, chemicals production in a way that's economically competitive. Um, and if I may, Anthony, uh, the one thing I missed maybe, uh, th because this was a question from the attendees at, uh, to the panelists, and they asked, what's the cost of storing the CO2? I think you were also going to get to that. Mm -hmm. And they said yeah. uh, that uh, the cost for storage and transport, so not the capture, because they're only talking about the storage and the transport. Uh, they're not looking at the capture side because someone else is doing it. Um, so they said that's about 50 euros per ton of CO2. So I don't know what that means in terms of being expensive, not expensive. Is that a... Uh, an unrealistic claim, but uh, that's what came up as a number. It's it's not unrealistic per se. I think it's pretty. I mean, I think it's pretty realistic, right? The cost of capture is typically about fifty dollars per ton um, for for capture. So basically, what they're saying is, 
it's about the same as you know a a, a cost leading, uh, you know, carbon capture solution. The basic problem, well, there's two basic problems. One is that we do want to capture a lot of emissions that are not cost leading, right? Um, and some of these other point source emissions are are fairly expensive, right? There's a there's a great chart. I don't have it in front of me, but there is a great chart. Uh, that we've talked about in the past and, and shown to clients of all the different costs of all the different emission sources. And some of them are, there's a really big range there, right? Um, but I mean, the other thing to think about is 50 euros a ton, right, is about half your budget. If you're looking at the the European uh, carbon uh, cost, whatever that thing is, the ETS, I think, I think the currently ETS currently sitting is around at 84 euros. 84 euros, all right. So you subtract 50 euros out of that, right? You've got what? you know 30 something 34 euros left to to play with um that's not a lot of money like that's below the cost of a lot of uh, carbon capture projects right and so there's other incentives i'm sure the there'll be more maybe direct incentives for carbon capture you can name it but it it is just tough uh, to make the math work right on uh on that uh, presumably that'll be cheaper if you're in the port area itself right i would imagine if you don't have to put it on a boat it'll probably be cheaper um so there's definitely opportunities for it to to go down but i think it does demonstrate even in a the best case scenario in europe strong regulatory support you're in the port itself you're still looking at significant costs and 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 carbon prices will have to be higher uh to continue to support this type of uh this type of operation which i mean it aligns with our analysis from two three four years ago right that um, the break-even point for a lot of this stuff was in like the hundred plus, you know, dollars per ton price range for for carbon. Yeah, but I mean, if you allow it's you know whatever roughly fifty to to capture and fifty to store, you know, you're within shouting distance of the the carbon price. And if the if the costs come down and the price uh, the price goes up, which is is not unrealistic over the next you know five to ten years. Uh, you could definitely see. yeah i i think it is realistic in that sense it's it's within it's not a number that makes me go oh my god this is never going to work right it's it's a number that's like okay we're going to have to do some continued development we're going to have to tweak around the edges we're going to have to drive that number down a little bit we're going to have to drive the, the the carbon price up a little bit but it's a realistic number yeah i mean i think the interesting thing is just can you can you imagine doing more carbon utilization at at greater scale to the point where some of these storage projects um maybe don't become as 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 necessary but i think you're you're realistically i mean it depends on the, the sort of the longer term trajectory and as long as you have those five refined running uh, those five refineries running there um you know you're you're, you're going to have way more co2 i think than you can realistically do utilization on but, you know, we're shifting to electric vehicle. I mean, the whole, the whole sort of future of that, that refining yeah, the, infrastructure the there is very much in question as, as, you know, we're shifting away from, from diesel and, and, and gasoline to, to electrification and the, and for transportation. Yeah. I mean, this is something that we've talked a ton about, but the demand for refinery products is the real issue for refineries going forward. Right. Um, and how do you justify continued in, uh, investment into these refineries in the context of 
declining demand, right? It gets very difficult. So it's like, okay, $50 a ton to store, and then, you know, another maybe $50 a ton to capture, that's $100 per ton. CapEx on carbon capture is still pretty high. You do the math, like, oh, well, gas demand is going to be flat. Diesel demand is going to be going down 3% a year. Maybe plastics demand is flat because of recycling. It's like, why am I investing, you know, $100 per ton into this this facility that's not going to actually grow my revenues, you know, <laughs> at all in the next 20 years, right? It starts to get very challenging. Karthik, anything else from that conference that really jumped out at you? Uh, just a couple of things in terms of trends, actually. So the first one was... Yeah, the vibe. Yeah. So most of the attendees would come in, they were chemicals companies, oil and gas companies, not, not more so utilities. So uh, the focus was mainly on reducing methane emissions. I was seeing that as a, as a, as a coming up a lot. It's not just CO2 emissions. Um, that was one. Um, the other thing, though, that came up for me specifically was that there was a general consensus within the crowd that Europe is far behind when it comes to incentivizing, uh, you know, technological innovation for sustainability. And now they're behind and, and lagging the likes of the US with the IRA. Uh, and that was one of the biggest trends that I could sense. And there was also an interesting thing during the CCS panel that <clears throat> one of the uh, attendees was quite shocked that they were talking about DAC and they said DAC is absurd. That was his tagline. He said, DAC is absurd and we shouldn't be pursuing it. There are better things to do than DAC. So those are the three there things. Are that, better things to do than DAC. That, those are the three things that jumped out for me, actually, at the conference. So speaking of Europe falling behind, uh, we do have a, a article. And Mike, you're the one who's really read this article <laughs> in more depth. I, I've skimmed it. But uh, why, why don't you, why don't you, this, this sparked a, a fair bit of, discussion in the deluxe channels uh so we wanted to flag it up here but the title of this article is uh unfriendly friends trade and relocation effects in the u.s uh or trade and relocation effects of the u.s inflation reduction act um yes policy wonks have done it again um what if something that's good is actually bad have have you considered that mike (laughs) yes i think the 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 eye-catching uh, sentence here is uh, this is a group of economists from the European Central Bank, though they are careful to note that the views expressed in this article uh, reflect the opinions of the authors and not, not necessarily those of the ECB. Uh, but the somewhat trolly sort of, uh, uh, takeaway from this is that uh, at the global level, uh, they're suggesting by, by looking at the spillover effects from the IRA, so they're analyzing the Inflation Reduction Act, how it's going to impact uh, global trade in key components like electric vehicles and, and batteries, uh, the, the segments they focus on. Uh, they say that it suggests their analysis suggests that because of the negative effects in other countries, uh, along with balanced against the positive ones in the U.S., the IRA could slow the green transition at a global level. So yes, what if it's what if what if spending six hundred billion dollars incentivizing the adoption of green technologies is actually uh, not going to be good for green technologies? Um, yeah. <laughs> what if this is why we can't trust economists to do anything? Honestly, uh, it's so crazy that there's a whole profession of people 
who theoretically control the, like the levers of world economic power and they're just all morons it's like <laughs> it's so wild to me how do we get to this state well, like I, I don't think they're morons i mean i think it's there's an argument to and it sort of depends against the the baseline right i, I that you're that you're going against it, it's certainly true if you put up these trade barriers and you know as they pointed out it's going to reduce opportunities for countries like Europe and China to obviously to export to the U.S. because you need to qualify for the um, you need to qualify for the uh, to get to qualify for the EV incentives, your components and your batteries, and your vehicles need to be made in the U.S., right? Um, and similarly for some of the other incentives. Um, so, you know, it's true. It's not like economically, like relative to the situation where you had the subsidies without the trade restrictions. I, I can believe it's less economically optimal. What I don't understand, and I don't think this is actually what the claim is is meant to be, is that, you know, relative to a world where the subsidies just didn't exist at all and the U.S. had done nothing instead of passing the IRA, like, it, it's hard to believe that it's that it's actually worse than that. Uh, because yeah. you are... You know, that people have modeled the impact of the the IRA. Other economists, whether you know, like them or not, <laughs> but no, other economic modeling has, has shown pretty significant impact of the IRA on the adoption of a lot of these green technologies, which you know, obviously well, is what you would expect. So my basic, so beyond the basic point that the the choice is not between some perfect version of the IRA that they imagine in their heads and you know the current IRA, it's between the current IRA and nothing, right? Um, that's one issue. The second issue is that there's no, as far as I can tell in my reading, there's no modeling of how other countries might respond. Um, or there's, there's, I guess, modeling of like, what if other countries increase trade barriers, like put in their own restrictions. But other countries are not going to do that because they're not the United States. So then th that's the big problem with this, is that it's really disconnected from reality, right? Um, like in the you know, year since the IRA has passed, China has become the biggest exporter of vehicles in the world, right? Primarily exporting electric vehicles, you know? Um, <laughs> and they're exporting them to other countries. Like, like the IRA has definitely had an impact on trade flows. The IRA has definitely had an impact on where people choose to invest their money and, and where they choose to build production. That, that That's no, uh, that's no secret or that's, you know, I certainly agree with that. But, First of all, the idea that other countries aren't going to, you know, respond with their own incentives uh, is, is sort of ridiculous, right? Um, or that those incentives aren't, you know, going to have sort of a positive impact on their domestic production is, is again, sort of ridiculous, right? Um, secondly, that, you know, this is happening in the context of green technologies overall needing redundant supply chains, right? And that's the thing is like, this whole idea of oh, this is like not economically efficient is the idea i think when, when they look at stuff like how this might impact trade flows or how this might impact you know this this overall productivity um that's an economic efficiency argument ultimately i think um and i know they're they're sort of talking they're looking at two specific sectors here of, of evs right but i mean putting aside the fact that like you know the economy or the green transition is much bigger than that like I don't care about economic efficiency that much. Like that's a much, much lower concern than 
scaling up green technologies and reducing carbon emissions, right? Yeah, and I think it's also because this is, it's a sector that is still experiencing, to the theme of our podcast, a lot of innovation, right? I think there's some other assumptions in here that 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 you have to question. So, for instance, they say because it, it might be hard to find alternative suppliers for rare critical minerals or high-end technologies, uh, their simulations assume lower than standard elasticities of substitution across products. You know, so yeah, that's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I think yeah, in a more conventional market, that might that might be the case. But I think because there is so much innovation happening, so much investment in innovation happening, you see that like with uh, you know uh, China's shift to lithium iron phosphate, right? Uh, from uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the manufacturers there are now relying on that instead of these nickel and cobalt based uh, based chemistries for their for their batteries, um, you know. So it is, yeah, the, 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 and normally, you know, in a, in an economic sense, the, the elasticity of substitution for LFE for those other, other materials, uh, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but in, in fact, you know, there's, there's a ways to innovate around that and, and, and make it work. So I, I think it's, it's not, not, um, you know, not factoring in, as you said, that overall market growth and not, not factoring in the impact of these these innovations that we're seeing that is going to enable that type of substitution. Yeah, and in particular, the, the big thing here they claim is that this is going to negatively impact production in China. Like most of the impacts come from negatively impacting China um, in a lot of these s- sectors and scenarios. Um, and that, A, it just doesn't make sense to me because, you know, like we said, China has a lot of flexibility in terms of the technologies they use. China is a leading exporter. China is very clearly positioning strategically to export. It's a lot more likely that exports from China will continue to increase and grow even more quickly as they enter an arms race with the United States. Like this is not how I think the future is going to go, right? Like China's economic output is not determined as directly by these sort of macroeconomic factors, right? which is like the basic problem with this analysis is that it's just like a classical economics analysis, right? Like it looks at stuff like trade barriers and it looks at stuff like, you know, Oh, like what are the impacts of like relocating investment? And it's like, that, that's not what matters. Like what matters is politics and geopolitics and technology, right? Those mm-hmm. are the, the two things, policy, specific policy and technology development are the two things driving the sustainable transition right now. Economics has nothing to do with it. Like <laughs> well, the nothing, most impactful but, thing, know. I mean, basically nothing, right? Like, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm, I'm taking a little harder stance. Uh, but Anthony, looking beyond the economics, and and maybe I'm trying to play devil's advocate here in terms of the IRA being the thing that accelerates uh, the energy transition in the United States. Now, uh, we are not doing enough. That I, I agree that we are not doing enough, and we need to deploy more renewables. You know, a lot of the other things, but. Um, Dr. Van Berkel did write um, an interesting article for Lux clients who are listening um, that the uh, IRA is this bumpy road to net zero where we are just going to deploy a lot of things in the short term. And so do you see this being a curve where we in overinvest in all these green and necessary sustainable technologies in the short term and then they just don't fit together as a, as a as a as a complete jigsaw puzzle because you have multiple pieces just not aligning and then that delays the impact in the long term which is maybe what they're trying to allude to with the article maybe not from an economic standpoint but you know 
I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think that actually that is more of a counterfactual to the argument that the article is making than you might think. Um, I actually think Europe is going to continue to accelerate past the United States in terms of the green transition. Um, <laughs> because I think what's going to happen in America is a lot of this IRA money you know, is going to flow in a, not a very directed way. And in about five to 10 years from now, we're going to have a lot of challenges. We're already having big challenges with things like grid interconnects, right? Mm -hmm. We're already having big challenges with things like the cost of building a wind farm in America is like, there's a story recently, uh, I think in the last week that this offshore wind farm in New York is being held up by three people, literally three people. And the delays from those three people have cost hundreds of millions of dollars to this wind project, right? Um, So in America, you know, we let cranks dictate policy uh on a local level right um and in the house of representatives system. and in the house of representatives i mean we, we also like say policy <laughs> at, at a national level. The speaker is, but, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but we especially let them dictate policy at a local level right and um you know europe in just general it's like construction costs are way lower uh the grid grid is managed sensibly right like and there is investment happening in europe towards uh all these areas right so i do think in five to ten years the europe europe will be will be further along on the green transition than america and their output of these technologies will be higher right and it's again it's because all the stuff analyzed in this paper has nothing to do with reality it doesn't have any impact it doesn't matter economic the economy is fake okay (laughs) for real well i mean honestly what these guys should should uh and and women should 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 do in this is try to persuade governments in Europe to actually make some more of these IRA style investments that, uh, you know, like what the U S has made, if you can stimulate that, that, that type of demand in, in Europe as well. And it definitely has, you know, it could be even like for the, because of the points you made about costs and, and infrastructure at all, it could be even more impactful in Europe. Yeah, I think, it, I think it will be. I think, it, I think Europe can achieve a lot more with a lot less money than America can. Right. As much as I'm like the Europe hater on this podcast, like the reality <laughs> is like Europe is really in position to accelerate their green transition much more so than the United States, even post IRA. Um, the IRA is, is a big deal and it's, you know, it's hot. It gets people talking. Um, but the reality on the ground is that I think Europe's going to accelerate. But I think it actually depends on what I would say. Maybe we are rambling too much about this topic, but for me specifically, what I'm sensing is that every country and every region wants to be resource and energy independent. So because of policies like the IRA, and as, as, as you mentioned, you know, people trying to identify the sweet spots where they can invest and make the most money out of, I think Europe not being one of those regions that's actually incentivizing these things at this point effectively could, you know, you know, maybe it's going to be a very slow start for them before they become. One of the most asked about questions and one of the hottest topics of the last two to three years has got to be hydrogen, everything related to hydrogen, whether it's green hydrogen produced by electrolysis, blue hydrogen, gray hydrogen, pink hydrogen, white hydrogen, you know, hydrogen storage, hydrogen transport, that's all, hydrogen that's storage, all hydrogen yeah. transport, hydrogen conversion. Everyone wants to know about hydrogen. Right. Um, and that's because it really has a unique role to play in the future of not just the energy transition, but in particular, decarbonized industry. And just last week, we got a major announcement on hydrogen from the U.S. government, particularly 
you know, the Department of Energy. They announced their regional clean hydrogen hubs. And this is really the culmination of, or not really a culmination, but sort of the, one of the first big steps of the, the triple crown of legislation that was passed over the last couple of years in the United States. And so we have uh, probably the perfect guest to, to talk about the hydrogen hubs projects in the U.S., Lux's own Dr. Ari Van Berkel, who has a very long history of not only at Lux, but before that at PNO, where he led research. And Ari's even been involved in some of the applications for these hydrogen hubs. So this is someone who has really a, you know, a ground level view of what's been going on. Ari, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. So maybe let's start with the most basic question, which is, what is a hydrogen hub? And, and how is this different from the more general subsidies or incentives that are being given out uh, by the U.S. government for hydrogen? Right. So hydrogen hubs were created, were established by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is different from the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, most of the hydrogen um, activities, most of the hydrogen support in the US is coming from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act by creating a tax incentive for um, uh, re for low carbon hydrogen, uh, right? Um, and, and you can get up to $3 per kilo of hydrogen uh, produced through the Inflation Reduction Act. So hydrogen hubs are different. They're not a tax incentive, they're a subsidy. They are uh, grants for building infrastructure. And why do you want to build this infrastructure? The idea behind the hydrogen hub is to break the cycle uh, which is holding hydrogen back. And that cycle is nobody's really strongly developing applications for hydrogen uh, because there's not a strong supply chain of hydrogen. On the other hand, nobody's developing a supply chain for hydrogen because there are no applications for hydrogen. So that kind of chicken and egg cycle needs to be uh, stimulated somehow. And that's where hydrogen hubs come in. They are showcasing both production and application of hydrogen in various regions in the U.S. So is the hydrogen hub going to be like a physical location, a place that I can visit? Or is it going to be more like a, a sort of a connected set of infrastructure set of projects in, in a, maybe a particular region, but not necessarily a discrete place or, or sort of, you know, uh, is it a thing I can hold in my hands, basically, is it, it, the question I'm asking here. Uh, I think you would struggle to hold it in your hands. I think if a hydrogen hub were to land on your toes, it would hit, hurt significantly. <laughs> um, but I also think in most cases, it would be a distributed thing. So it, it, there's multiple infrastructure, but there, I, and, and there will be a hydrogen hub headquarters of sorts. So you, you'll probably be able to visit an office, but the, the real hydrogen hub stuff uh, will be distributed um, across the region. So there's some hydrogen hubs are uh, planning to build hydrogen fueling stations. Now, naturally, those will be distributed because that, that's the only way it makes sense. On the other hand, if you look at the hydrogen hub around Houston uh, in Texas, uh, there will be a significant 
single location where blue hydrogen will be produced. So hydrogen from natural gas through steam methane reforming, uh, capturing the CO2 and then uh, sequestering the CO2 somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. So that is a, one more centralized facility in that hub. But then again, the hydrogen itself will be used, for example, in refineries or in the production of ammonia. So it will again be distributed. A, a big part of the hydrogen hubs is creating infrastructure for transportation and storage of hydrogen so that it's easier for new applications, new users of hydrogen uh, to tap into the hub, if you like. So it's a lot more distributed than like some of the port projects we've seen, where it's like we have a, a campus and everything is kind of on the campus and, and it's really very centralized in that way. Yeah. Hydrogen hubs will have a research component. So there's research happening as well into hydrogen applications, but that's a minor component. The big part of the hydrogen hub is just doing it, creating hydrogen somehow through electrolysis, uh, through uh, blue hydrogen, steam methane reforming, uh, and then using it. And, and the, the different hubs uh, are different in how they generate the hydrogen and more importantly also in how they intend to develop applications for hydrogen. There are quite a few that are developing applications for transportation purposes, heavy duty goods transportation, for example, but then there's also quite a few that are developing industrial applications. Um, one in particular is looking at the steel and the glass industry, for example. So that's probably a good segue to, to kind of get into this question of who is actually doing these hydrogen hubs, right? Because when you look at the, the announcement on the White House, I've got it up here, whitehouse.gov, they have the seven regional clean hydrogen hubs. And then, you know, they're like the, the California hydrogen hub is being done by the Alliance for Renewable Clean Hydrogen Energy Systems in California. But that's, as I understand it, kind of a purpose-built, you know, legal vehicle for applying for this hydrogen hub. And its constituent members are a lot of different you know, existing companies. Um, and for something like the Gulf Coast Hydrogen Hub, right, by the High Velocity Hydrogen Hub Texas, that's, you know, a lot of Chevron, uh, I think, sort of the existing oil and gas players. And a lot of these are being constructed by sort of the energy industry as it already exists, um, rather than, I don't know, you could imagine the government creating a whole new legal entity, for example, to... to operate these hydrogen hubs or doing it itself and sort of a different structure. So who, who is really doing these hydrogen hubs and, and why is, you know, I mean, beyond the fact that it's a lot of money, you know, um, this is a lot of money, by the way, each hydrogen hub is getting around a billion dollars. Some are a little lower than that. Some are a little higher than that, $1.2 billion, but we're talking about billions of dollars here being, being given as, as, as grants, right? Um, of sorts, of sorts. There, so really, uh, I think in this first round, they're only, only, quote unquote, only getting about 100 million. So the grant says up to 1.2 billion or up to 925 million. Uh, but that is staged. So right now, these hubs are all in the front end engineering and design phase. They get money to do that, but they won't get the rest of the money until the DOE has voiced an opinion about the result of that front-end engineering and design. And, and to my understanding, 
uh, there can be uh, some shifts in in the in the allocation of money depending on that. So that's one. Now, your question about who is who is the hydrogen hub uh, is really interesting. For me, uh, with a lot of experience in the European innovation ecosystem, this is a remarkably European approach um, because it's a consortium of companies uh, that is applying for the hydrogen hub, a consortium of companies and research institutes, in fact. Um, and they, most of them have created a special vehicle. So one legal entity, typically a corporation that will act as a recipient of the money from the DOE and then will have some sort of governance and, and the proposals have been evaluated on the governance as well to allocate the money uh, to all of the participating organizations. This is somewhat, as far as I can tell, it is somewhat innovative uh, for uh, US uh, innovation money to be spent for US um, innovation development money, if, if you'd like. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense because the, the basic problem, as I pointed out earlier, for the hydrogen hub is to create the hydrogen supply chain. Right? Both create applications for hydrogen and generation for hydrogen, and if you like, the midstream transportation and storage. And those are inherently different companies. So you, the, the only successful way of implementing a hydrogen hub would be uh, to have multiple companies collaborate. Um, some companies will be creating hydrogen, some will be using hydrogen, uh, some will just be supplying services. And then, of course, you need the backing of the research community because in many cases, you will also need to develop some new knowledge or technology around it. So it makes a lot of sense to create consortia, to create uh, a group of companies that works together. And in most cases, these hubs have created a specific legal entity to do so. In some cases, like the Appalachian hub, for example, uh, Vettel is, uh, is the main contractor. Um, but that's not really relevant. What's really relevant is the governance behind. So the way how the group of companies together decides uh, who gets which money and how to how to allocate it to projects and that's still mostly undecided so when you look at the hydrogen hubs as such the, their proposals they have a plan but the plan has not been broken down into individual projects yet that's what's going to happen now with the front-end engineering yeah one of the things that struck me about the participants in here too is that um you know, particularly since with some of the other provisions in the infrastructure law and the IRA, there's been a lot of angst about, you know, domestic sourcing and excluding foreign uh, entities from, from participating. There's actually quite a bit of overseas companies that are involved in these. Air Liquide is, is involved in quite a few of them. Orsted, um, uh, the Pacific Northwest one has BP as well as Fortescue, the Australian mining company that's you know, getting really big into hydrogen these days. So, what did you what did you make of that? And is that something that I you know you think is intentional as a bit of a diplomatic initiative as uh, as well? No, it's a good thing, right? It 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 should happen because the the investments are regional. Remember, so 
whatever's whatever money's going to get spent it's it's going to be spent by building something in the region of the hub so if you can find uh, foreign companies to spend a lot of money to build something in the us from from the us government perspective uh, i'd say that's preferable that, that's actually a good thing so having foreign companies participate uh, contributing their knowledge uh, co-investing uh, in in infrastructure in the us i think uh, those are all quite desirable outcomes for those hydrogen hubs so one of the the fears and we were sort of talking about this earlier in the in the episode is that the us the combination of us like laws is going to create protectionism or otherwise tip the scales towards investment in America, which I think is true. I mean, we're seeing investment in America here as a result of this. But as you pointed out, there's a lot of foreign companies here. You know, is this going to have a positive net impact on global investment, these hubs, because people are going to, you know, take the learnings and the lessons and bring them back to other regions? Like, like, how do you see this in that the context of global hydrogen development? Probably it is. We can see the U.S. being a front runner now on hydrogen uh, because the IRA triggers a lot of investment in just hydrogen production, which causes those companies to wonder what to do with all the hydrogen. So that that's triggering its own dynamics. And now the hubs, uh, seven billion—that's not small money, right? So that that is a significant amount of uh, experience that is going to be generated. And some of those foreign companies are for sure going to use that experience in, in Europe or in Australia uh, or Japan as well. So that that's one thing. Um, as One other thing to remember is that an important criterion for the hubs was also the uh, community aspect of it. And, and I think if you look at the distribution, the geographic distribution of the hubs, you will see that um, the regional aspect of whether or not a region is severely affected by the energy transition, uh, I think, I don't know, I wasn't there when they when they evaluated the proposals, but look, just looking at where the hubs ended up being, um, there was a big emphasis on regional economic aspects. So um, the Appalachian got a hub they have coal mining issues. Joe right? Manchin so they... came through. <laughs> yeah, Joe Manchin truly. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, picking they, up the ball and carrying it once again. They have real problems, right? If, yeah. if you if you have to stop coal mining, you have to f- develop alternative economic uh, activity. So uh, same for the Houston region, right? If 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 your uh, main activity is producing oil and gas, and and producing oil and gas is not. Uh, really on vogue anymore uh, due to fossil emissions. You have to develop an alternative economic activity. So I think that played a major part in where uh, the hubs eventually landed. Yeah, and I think it's sort of related to this maybe. I was I was curious too, is one of the things that, that struck me about this is the, you know, the White House press release says that I think something like two thirds of the funding is going towards green hydrogen. So produced by electrolysis from renewable electricity. But if you look at the descriptions, there's a pretty heavy fossil fuel flavor to it, right? The Appalachian hub talks about it's going to take advantage of the bountiful natural gas in the region, the 
obviously a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure and oil and gas companies involved in the Houston one, the Heartland Hydrogen Hub in Minnesota, North Dakota is, you know, obviously has a lot of uh, emphasis on tapping fossil gas for conversion into the hydrogen. So you, how do you see that, you know, they, clearly they're betting big on both uh, green and, and blue hydrogen. You think they're looking at this as, you know, it's blue hydrogen to invest in, we can scale that up more quickly at first and and use that to develop some of these applications and then maybe shift more to green hydrogen later. What do you what do you see as the thinking and the, the impact behind that sort of blue-green mix? Yeah, I thought that the the two-thirds statement is a bit of a mystery to me, to be honest. Um, because to begin with, uh, not even two-thirds of the money of the hydrogen hubs should go to hydrogen generation. Because remember that it also needs to develop hydrogen application. So uh, I, I don't know how to how to assess that two thirds uh, statement. Um, I would say we, we would have to. So th the way I interpret it is at least directionally. So I think uh, the DOA would have the DOE would have given uh, the wish going into this front end engineering because we're, we're only now just designing the hubs. Right, so for a design parameter for the hubs is it should have a significant amount of green hydrogen as opposed to blue or pink or, or even gray hydrogen. I think gray hydrogen is excluded altogether. If it's gonna be two thirds, I don't know. We have to see once the, um, once the designs are there. I guess the, the exact statement is roughly two thirds of the total project investment are associated with green electrolysis based production so they may be including much or all of the application focused uh yeah so that uh, raises the question in, in that too. <laughs> are fuel cells uh considered electrolysis right it's kind of inverted electrolysis so maybe that's the thinking here i don't know so maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about the applications and i do want to pull back and talk on a high level like will this actually help us achieve our goals but one of the things you mentioned to me, which I didn't quite realize at first, is that a lot of this is fuels oriented, right? This is not necessarily, you know, we talked about industrial decarbonization at the sort of the opening here, but, you know, a lot of this is going towards potentially fuel cells or heavy transportation. So what do you think about the mix of, of applications that appear to be on the table and, um, you know, what that means for the, the impact of the project overall? Yeah, I was a bit surprised by the amount of hydrogen mobility that was, uh, and, and even hydrogen power generation that was part of the hubs. Um, it, in general, our thinking has been that hydrogen mobility makes a lot of sense in places like Japan, South Korea, and Europe, because those places need to import renewable energy uh, from outside their territory. So if, if you're importing renewable energy, and if you're doing it in the form of hydrogen anyway, then sure, you can turn the hydrogen into electricity and try to squeeze the electricity over the grid into a car. But if, if you're going to do all that, you might as well just use the hydrogen directly in a car. Now, the situation for the US is different. The US uh, doesn't necessarily have to import renewable energy. It, it has more than enough opportunity to generate renewable energy within its own territory. However, I do think, uh, taking a closer look, there is a hydro an energy distribution issue in the US. 
So it makes it still makes sense to develop hydrogen mobility in the US because the alternative would be to massively invest in electricity transmission across the entire uh, US, right? Between states, uh, but also within states. Uh, and, I, and, and it's it's quite possible, it's actually likely that uh, distributing energy through hydrogen pipelines is actually much more uh, advantageous uh, if, if you have to, to distribute large amounts of energy. But shouldn't we be investing in large amounts of energy transmission and, you know, the associated infrastructure, grid interconnects, that kind of thing in the U.S.? Like, this is not... if. Like, like I understand there's some amount of energy that will flow through this and this will have a beneficial energy, uh, you know, transmission, right, like impact. But we need to double or triple the amount of renewable electricity produced in the United States, I think. And we have to, you know, it takes way too long to build that infrastructure in the United States compared to most other developed nations for a lot of reasons. And we have a lot of problems. We were kind of talking about this. You know, earlier where it's like, hey, like three people can disrupt a project, you know, a $200 million project because three like local homeowners, you know, think that, you know, wind turbines cost 5G or whatever, right? Um, So, like, I, I get where you're coming from, but isn't that bad? Like, shouldn't we be investing? Shouldn't we be doing this parallel or shouldn't we be, you know, wouldn't it be better to focus this on really industrial applications and then build out that transmission infrastructure by itself? Probably you should do both, but I think long distance, uh, and and you will need long distance in some cases, for example, from the coast inland, on the coast, obviously you can do offshore wind, for example. Uh, Long distance hydrogen is actually a cheaper way of moving that energy around, especially in pipelines. So it, it, and it's a it's a more dense form of moving the energy around as well. Uh, so it's less disruptive to the environment, right? You, you will have less homeowners uh, objecting because you just have less homes uh, to annoy with, with a pipeline than if you're building transmission lines. So I think you should do both, but uh, putting a bit more emphasis on molecules rather than electrons uh, is, is not a bad idea. Yeah, and notably, there are a number of uh, oil and gas pipeline developers in here who are no doubt involved in, in several of these hubs or no doubt looking to pivot to hydrogen. I guess one of the, uh, the last question maybe about applications, it, it's, you know, the U.S. already produces about 10 million metric tons, I think it is, of, of hydrogen, gray hydrogen, uh, almost entirely today. How much of this does, that's always the thing I think like clients ask a lot about, oh, you know, what, what's all this hydrogen going to be used for? What are these applications? Ari did a whole webinar on it a couple of, a few weeks ago. Why is a, how much of this might just end up going towards displacing sort of existing uses for, for gray hydrogen? Yeah, I think um, a good way to start. And if you look at, for example, Shell in the Netherlands uh, starts by building a large electrolyzer in the Rotterdam area, and and their primary uh, buyer for the hydrogen is their own refinery. Right, so that that's an easy way to start. You you you're gonna produce hydrogen, and you know already upfront that you have a buyer being yourself. So that's that's an easy way to do it. Um, 
initially to get started. However, uh, in, for the hydrogen economy to grow, you have to show a growth market for hydrogen. And ammonia for fertilizer is a somewhat growing market, like 2-3% per year, roughly, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization, UN. Um, refineries, the other big consumers of hydrogen today, uh, is a rather questionable growth market for hydrogen consumption. Uh, because if everyone is going to drive an electric vehicle, then refineries will struggle uh, to sell their products, obviously. So I think it makes a lot of sense to, so yes, it, it could displace in the short term quite a lot of current hydrogen consumption. But I think the point of the hydrogen hubs really is to show growth potential, a growth market for hydrogen. So we've been talking a lot about all these different aspects of it, kind of on a more focused level. Let's zoom out. Big picture. The United States is investing up to $7 billion in these hydrogen hubs. It's a lot of money. They're giving it to these existing companies, right? Uh, primarily. Are we going to achieve our goals? Is this a good way to do things? You know, you talked about how this is a little bit more of a European style investment for America, which is traditionally the land of rugged individualism. But is this going to work, right? Is this Is this good? And how good is it? So a lot will depend on the details. This is really a case of the devil is in the details. And the details are known yet. So really, uh, we have to look at the front-end engineering design uh, that will happen over the course of presumably the, the next 18 months or so. I think it could work. I think it's it's a good approach in principle. And it would uh, it, it does help to create... A, a good environment for investing in hydrogen. So in that sense, it could work. Now, the point you're making is about existing companies. Uh, and um, on the one hand, I can see why you're making that point, right? Existing companies have existing interests and are they going to cannibalize the existing interest in favor of something new like hydrogen? That's all true. On the other hand, um, non-existing companies tend to have less money to invest. So you, you do need, if you want to accelerate uh, investments, uh, it really helps if there's an organization behind it that has money and that has the procedures and the knowledge and the experience to take on big projects. And in that sense, I think this is a good approach. Um, I would say it would help to complement this in some way by more innovative hubs where, where you uh, create maybe startup ecosystems or some sort of uh, university or, or, or applied research ecosystem which develops entirely new uh, products. But uh, I mean, that's a next step. Uh, and maybe some of the hydrogen hubs will um, Propose to do something like that. I, I could see Battelle doing something like that for a time. Well, Ari, I think this has been really good. I, I wanted to say thanks. Um, you came on this podcast at short notice. We only had this announcement a week ago, and we're going to be able to get this out uh, real quick. So I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks at our, our forum in Amsterdam. 
we'll be talking lots of hydrogen in there. So again, if you are uh, if you're able to make it to Amsterdam in in early November, consider checking that out. November seventh, right? November seventh, specifically, not just any time. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can drop by and see Ari in the office there anytime, but uh, yeah. the forums on the seventh. <laughs> Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.